Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast water cooler talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is master wordslinger Len Levinson. He is the blazing typewriter behind 86 of the best paperback original novels in the men's adventure and Western genres written during the 80s and 90s. Two of his men's adventure series, The Sergeant and The Rat Bastards, are considered by many as the best of the best in the genre. They are currently available as ebooks, but the original paperback editions are highly sought after by collectors. Len also wrote more than a few westerns. Recently, he has been sharing the stories behind the writing of his most popular western novels on social media, which prompted me to call him and ask him to be a guest on the Six Gun Justice podcast. Hello, friend. How are you? I'm doing great. I feel as if I know you because we've communicated so much online, but it's great to hear your voice, Paul. It's a whole new world, isn't it? Yes, it is. The world of high technology. Len, you've turned your hand to a variety of genres over the years. When in your long and storied career did you write your first Western? My first Western, 1988. Would you like me to tell you how it came about? Absolutely. That would be terrific. It all came about after my Rat Bastard theory was not renewed. And I was sitting in the office of my literary agent, Barbara Lowenstein. At that time, her office was on 57th Street near Central Park. She said, what do you want to write next? And I said, I don't know, but I don't think I want to write any more war novels. I feel like I'm shell-shocked from all these <laughs> war novels. And since they haven't sold so well, I'd like to do something else. She thought for a few seconds, and then she said, would you be interested in writing Westerns? And I said, sure, because what else am I going to say? i got to pay the rent. <laughs> so I said, sure. <laughs> i got to buy food. i got to do all these things, buy clothes. So I said, sure. I think a lot of writers do that. They say yes, and then a little while later they go, what have I gotten myself into? Yes, because I've never written any Westerns before. So a few weeks later she called me and she said she had a contract for me to write two books for Charter in a series called The Long Rider. And the name was Clay Dawson for all the writers. And I don't know how many of the Long Riders there were. I don't think there were many, certainly not more than eight. But I wrote number three. And number four, the character, his name was Gabe Conrad, the protagonist. So I sat down to write. He's walking into a hotel room at night, and he turns on the light. But what kind of light did he turn on? <laughs> no electricity. Was it a whale oil lamp? Did he light a candle? And at that point, I realized I didn't know anything about the Old West. And I had to just get up and start doing research. I was living in New York City at the time, and a great resource was the New York Public Library on 42nd Street and 5th Avenue, the big one. It's a big building, but underneath the building and underneath the adjacent park, is called Bryant Park, there are the stacks. So you go into room 315 and go through the card catalogs. This is before computers. And you fill out documents and you give them to the person sitting at the desk. And the documents go down a dumb waiter into the stacks. And about 15 minutes later, the books come out. So I went there every day for about a month. And I discovered that a lot of people who went west were Civil War veterans. 
So I thought that I had to study the Civil War in order to understand them. And then in order to understand the Civil War, I had to understand the Mexican War, which led to the Civil War. And then the War of 1812, and I realized I had to go back to George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton to understand this country. And thus began my love affair with American history. I read a lot of American history, and I finally felt comfortable starting the novel. And I discovered they used coal oil lamps, what they call coal oil, which we call kerosene. So just to find out about coal oil lamps, you had to spend a week in the stacks reading American history. It was like a month, Paul. I went there every day for a month. I walked from my apartment to the library. I had lunch in the neighborhood, stayed in the library until 5 or 6 o'clock and walked home. And I was just like a student cramming for an exam. And finally, I felt comfortable starting the novel. During this time, I read a lot of books, and one of the most interesting books and best books I ever read about the Old West was Roughing It by Mark Twain, which is about a gold mining town in Nevada with all the crazy people who were searching for gold and swindling each other and the kinds of women who were in the town. The book was hilarious. So I decided to start my first novel in a gold mining town and instead of him walking into a hotel room, the book opens when he's riding down the main street of this town. And the title of the book is Gold Town. So that's how it all began. American history is all about storytelling. And as writers, that makes us feel right at home. We love stories. Stories with great characters like Andrew Jackson and George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Daniel Boone. In the Old West, Bill Hickok and the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. I went to the O.K. Corral. I went to Tombstone, Arizona. I realized if I'm going to write about the West, I couldn't cover the whole West, so I concentrated on Arizona. And I knew I'd have to understand Indians, so I focused on Apaches. And I made numerous research trips to Tucson, Arizona, where a girlfriend of mine the family was there, so we went there together. And I wandered around on the desert and had visions and all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and that research went very well with your Apache Wars series. When did that start? The first one was published in 1994. I probably started it in 1993. And that series began many years before when I was in the desert of Arizona hiking around with a canteen and a knapsack and a couple of sandwiches. And I stopped beneath a cottonwood tree, and it was very hot. And I smoked something which is now legal, but then was illegal. And I started to fantasize this troop of cavalry coming across the desert, returning from a patrol in the Apache homeland. And they were led by this big, tall, husky, John Wayne-type officer. And I thought, gee, I'd like to write about that officer someday. So many years later, when I was planning the Apache War Saga, I brought that character back and developed him. And that's how the Apache War Saga started. To get into this a little deeper, I have been a very ambitious writer. I wanted to write great novels. And I thought the Apache War Saga, I wanted it to be my war and peace I'm not told story, and I'll never be told story, but that was the goal, war and peace. He wrote about the Napoleon Wars. I wrote about the Apache Wars. 
So that's how it all became, and it was very ambitious. They were big, thick books. I wrote six of them, and I hoped to continue, but the series wasn't renewed because I guess sales weren't that great, or they fit into the category of adult westerns, which the major companies stopped publishing. Did you sell that to the publishing house, or did they come to you and ask for a series? No, I developed that series, and my literary agent sold it to Signet. And off the top of my head, I don't remember my first editor's name, but he was very enthusiastic about this series. And he praised it highly, but it did not have great sales. And I don't know why. If somebody could understand what sold and what didn't, he would be the very wealthy president of a publishing company. But I thought that series was great. I thought it was fabulous. I thought it would turn the industry, if not the industry, on its heels. And it did not sell that well, and I was very disappointed. And after it, I just couldn't write anymore when I got a job. It was my Waterloo. <laughs> it's one of those things we all face. Why does one author sell so much better than another author who's just as good a writer, writing just as good of books, but they don't get their contract renewed, and the other people hit the lottery? Yeah, you just put your finger on it. I've often thought it's like the lottery. Writing novels is like the lottery, and it's very hard to win the lottery, and it's very hard to become a successful writer. I was successful for many years, but I never really made the big bucks. But I want to make clear that I enjoyed writing these books, and it was worth it. I love to write stories because, perhaps like you, I'm in the story. I'm, I'm not just writing a story. I'm living the story. I'm in it. I'm having adventures and shooting people and having love affairs with beautiful women and getting shot at. It was absolutely worth it. You mentioned earlier about Mark Twain's sense of humor in Roughing It. And you did a yeah. humorous Western series in The Pecos Kid. If I tell you about The Pecos Kid, we'll be talking all night tomorrow, but I'll try to edit it down. I developed that series. After my first series, The Searcher, wasn't renewed, I wanted to come up with another series because I loved writing westerns at that point. And I was thinking about myself when I was 18. I left home when I was 18 after a big blowout with my father. And I was just a vagabond on the face of the earth. I had nowhere to go. But I did have a dream. Before I had the big blowout with my father, I was reading a book called Geraldine Bradshaw by a writer who was once very famous called Calder Willingham, now completely forgotten. But he wrote a lot of stage plays and novels. Geraldine Bradshaw was about a bunch of bellhops in a resort hotel in California having love affairs with movie stars and models and debutantes. So after the big fight with my father, and I decided he would kill me or I would kill him. I had to leave home. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I thought at the time. And I thought I would go to California, but it seemed awfully far off. So instead, I went to Miami Beach to become the bellboy. And when I got to Miami Beach, grown men with families were bellboys. They didn't hire kids who just walked off the street. So I became a dishwasher and busboy and all that stuff. But anyway, when I was thinking about the Pecos kid, I thought about that kid when I was 18 who's wandering around trying to earn a living and find love. And that's the Pecos kid. He is in a monastery. He gets into a fight with another orphan in this monastery. has a lot of orphans. 
and the abbot throws him out. So he's a vagabond on the face of the earth. And whereas I wanted to be a bellboy, he wanted to be a cowboy. Enter that kid. He's 18, just like me, but he's much better looking than I am or I was. I patterned his looks after Elvis Presley. So here's Elvis Presley at the age of 18 with my personality roaming the Old West, having adventures. I loved that series. I loved all these books that I wrote. I just didn't knock them out. The people probably thought I was a hack, but I loved what I was writing, and I really put my heart and soul into everything I wrote. I enjoyed writing, and I really have no regrets. The Pecos Kid, I had so much fun writing that, I can't begin to tell you. I really enjoyed it, the adventures of that kid, because he's an orphan, and he starts finding out about who his parents were. And in the first book, he runs into an old alcoholic gunfighter who teaches him the classic fast draw. The kid, he's very good. He has very good instincts and reflexes. His problem is he's very good-looking, like Elvis Presley, and women keep hitting on him, and their boyfriends and husbands get angry, and he keeps getting into gunfights. And again, he's this kid from a monastery. He has morals, and he doesn't want to kill people, but he has to kill people so that they don't kill him. And then a newspaper editor sees him in one of his gunfights and writes an article about him and calls him the Pecos Kid. And that's how he becomes the Pecos Kid. And he tells the newspaper editor, you shouldn't have done that. People are looking at me. People want to kill me. And it's all your fault. The newspaper editor says something like, you know, what do you expect me to do? Tell the truth? (laughs) It goes back to when the fact becomes legend, print the legend. That's exactly true. Because legends sell newspapers and ordinary people don't sell newspapers. So the Pecos kid becomes famous and notorious, and he falls in love with this saloon singer who's a former Southern belle, but she lost everything in the war, and she also was roaming the West based on a former lady friend of mine. She's about five years older than he is. She's in all the books, too, but they get together, they break up, they get together, they break up. He has love affairs with other women. And he's searching for more information about his father and his mother. So that sort of propels the narrative. One of the things you said about putting yourself into every book you wrote, that's one of the reasons why your books have been so enduring. You talk about the series were canceled because they didn't sell well. But since then, they've been discovered over and over again by readers who just love what you've done. How do you feel about this late-in-life discovery of Len Levinson, the icon of paperbacks? It's absolutely, positively wonderful. Because until the internet, I just thought of myself as this failed writer and loser. And then I go on the internet, I go on Facebook, and I'm meeting all these people who loved my book. And there were a lot of them. A lot of people liked them. And you probably know about Joe Kenny and Mm -hmm. the glorious trash blog. Yes. He started the ball rolling, really. He called me one night and said, are you Len Levinson? And I said, yes. And he told me he was a fan of mine and he was writing about my books. I'd never heard of his blog before. And that's when I started to realize there was an interest in my old books. And then when I went on Facebook, I'm amazed that all the people who enjoyed my books and who read them. It gives me great pleasure to know these books have given other people pleasure. 
And you see over and over again, as word of mouth spreads about a series that you wrote, other fans come along and go, I trust that fan's opinion. I'm going to try these two. And oh my gosh, I love these. They're so great. And, and so it goes. The ball keeps rolling. I've noticed that. So unfortunately, Steven Spielberg has never read one. <laughs> I'm waiting for a call from Steven Spielberg. Some of my books have been optioned for the movies, but no movies have ever been made. The one that's been optioned the most, three, maybe four times, was The Last Buffoon. It's not a biographical novel about a Pulp Fiction writer, me. And a lot of the stuff that happened to me is in that book, but I played it for laughs, and a lot of people really enjoyed it. And there were three or four movie options taken out, but no movie ever was made. And of course, the only person who could play the leading part is moi. <laughs> Outside of your westerns, it's my favorite Len Levinson book. It is just hysterical. When I wrote it, I thought it was hysterical. I was laughing myself at some of these ridiculous things that were just erupting out of my imagination. I thought it was hilarious, and there was always something new popping into my mind. Any writer who reads that book is going to see parts of themselves in there. Yeah, I think so. Especially the writers who write a lot of books, one after the other. I was writing a book every two months for wow. a long period of time, and it was very hard on me. But it was always the agony and the ecstasy. I loved it. It was ecstasy, but it also was very hard to keep the focus. And in order to keep the focus, I had to limit, cut down, eliminate my social life. Because people distracted me, and I wanted to stay on that storyline day after day, night after night, I wanted to stay on. And I was thinking about those books all the time. When I wasn't writing, when I was taking a walk in New York City, I was thinking about the next scene. In the evenings before I went to bed, I was thinking about the next scene. I was deep into those books, but it really cut out my social life. And I can't begin to tell you what it did to my love life. A woman has a relationship with a man. She wants to be with him. And she can't have a relationship with a man who wants to be alone all the time. She doesn't want to have a relationship with all of your characters. She wants a relationship with you. <laughs> yes, yes, and she's competing against all my women characters. Len, I really appreciate you being with me today. Thank you so much for taking your time. I wish you the best of luck, and we will talk again. Okay, I hope so. It was great talking with you, Paul. Thanks, Len. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website, sixgunjustice.com, for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and don't squat on your spurs. Adios, we're out of here. Let's ride.